Hello and welcome to an all new episode of Close Talking. My name is Ozymandias. <laughs> oh my god. Alright, we really haven't um, introduced the concept. Jesus. Well, that was Jack Rossiter Munley. I uh, think I was clear that I'm Ozymandias. Alright. So, what Jack would have told you if he was a reasonable co-host, which he is not, as I am your other much more reasonable co-host, Connor McNamara Stratton, we're going to talk about the poem Ozymandias, which is by the great romantic poet Percy Fish Shelley. Hey, Connor. What? Connor. What did my boy PBS say to people when he did something naughty? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm a bad bish. Oh, God. <laughs> we gotta yeah, cut hey, that. Hey, Connor. <laughs> my boy PBS, you know he loved those club tracks, right? Oh, what no. was his favorite banger from the romantic era? Don't tell me it was Bish Don't Kill My Vibe. No. Oh. It was old-timey Britney Spears's work Bish. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, I <laughs> welcome to Close Talking. This has been something I really wanted to do. because <laughs> I Just for the it. jokes, not even for the poem, just for the, the Bish jokes. I mean, well, I was referring specifically to playing the clip of someone saying I am Ozymandias instead of saying my real name when we started the episode. Oh, yeah, that happened. I already blocked that out. <laughs> a, a yes and Connor is the language of good <laughs> co-hosting and right. also improv. Uh, right. Yeah. Anyway, welcome to Close Talking. I am Jack Roster Munley co-host of Close Talking, not Ozymandias, King of Kings, but we are talking about the poem Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley today. Things to love about Percy Bysshe Shelley. One, initials are PBS. It's pretty sweet. Uh, he's a romantic poet and hung out with all the cool dudes from the romantic era, writing really passionate stuff. Another thing, his works are in the public domain. You can listen to people read him for free on LibriVox. We're going to provide you a bunch of links to that, and you should definitely take advantage of it. Less cool is that he died when he was 29. That's kind of sad. But before he did that, he managed to marry Mary Shelley. So his wife was smarter than he was, which is always kind of cool. Uh, he also wrote some like pretty groundbreaking works about nonviolent protest, which is like a whole other thing that he didn't really? get recognized for. Yeah, uh, like really foundational philosophical treatises on the topic. Wow. So yeah. All around cool guy. This poem he wrote because he and his friend had a write off and his friend lost poor Horace Smith, who also wrote a, a poem, a sonnet-like poem about Ozymandias, which is good for my boy PBS because it brings his lifetime reading challenge total to one in one because on a particularly, so he and Mary like went away for the summer together to, but it was an unseasonably cold summer. There's like a bunch of records about how cold the summer was. And they had a like couples write-off because they're both writers and he wrote, I mean, probably some good stuff. He's a cool dude. But she wrote Frankenstein. <laughs> so yeah. he definitely lost that right off. Yeah. So it's good that he kind of took the took the cake on this one. Both poems, including the one that we'll read, is about a real statue of a king um, in ancient Egypt. Right, so Ozymandias is the Greek name for the individual who is widely recognized as the person who was Pharaoh when Egypt was at the height of its power, Ramses II. And so this is, there was a statue 
of Ramses II that was discovered in Egypt and was making its way to London around the time both of these poems were written. And Shelley's is good and his friends is charitably, I'm gonna say not remembered as fondly for a reason. <laughs> Poor Horace Smith. He, the Horace friends, the title of his poem was so bad. So Horace Smith tragically called his poem on a stupendous leg of granite discovered standing by itself in the deserts of Egypt with the inscription inserted below. Yikes. I mean, it's like I know that James Wright was going to come along with the cool long titles, but that was many uh, years to come. And this one is just quite bad. The thing about those long titles also is that, as you noted, they're cool. And this one is, <laughs> this one's just With long. the inscription inserted below, it's like never end any title that way, I think. Like, are you an archeologist describing your find? What is this? <laughs> Show don't tell, my dude. Show don't tell. Did no one ever tell you this, Horace? Um, so anyway, PBS did a good job, and we're going to talk about his poem because he really nailed it and wrote something that people have remembered, and we'll hopefully get a little bit to the reasons why. I'm going to read it, I think, is the first thing. Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said... Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. That's cool. Skabloosh. Pretty good. <laughs> so the poem itself is like kind of supposed to be a sonnet. It's like not totally an iambic pentameter and the rhyme scheme is real funky, but it's a sonnet. It, it's a sonnet. Um, the, the rhyme scheme for those of you playing along at home is A, B, A, B, A, C, D, C, E, D, E, F, E, F. It's kind of funky. Um, which I personally like because the rhymes then become more fun than like a really we've talked before about kind of loud forms and I feel like it keeps the sonnet form from being so loud in the poem and it lets the poem just on the kind of on the subject of it remaining relevant it makes it feel a little bit less old timey I agree yeah I agree and the other part so it is 14 lines and also the other big characteristic of a sonnet is the volta um or the turn um which traditionally happens between the eighth and the ninth line um 
And that happens in this one pretty clearly um, because the first eight lines sort of describe the statue. And then the ninth line is on, on the pedestal, these words appear and it sort of gets to what was written on the pedestal. Um, and so that's like a pretty clear Volta there. Um, but you're right. The, the kind of, it's interesting that the rhyme scheme is almost like six and then eight, but the lines themselves are like eight and then six. Um, so there's a sort of like interlocking, um, that you wouldn't normally have between the sort of the lines and the rhyme scheme. Um, which is, I think is pretty cool. I agree. I think something else that kind of almost, it almost works against the form is the way that different voices are used in the poem, because those also do not break along the normal lines of, as you were saying, the Volta usually comes in in a particular place. That's not going on here. And neither is the way that the voices switch in the poem. Yeah, it's, I met a traveler from an antique land. That's the first line. And then it's, who said, and then the quote begins and continues for the end of the line. Yeah, no, I think that's it's really one of the most striking parts of the poem. It sort of reminds me of Plato's Symposium, um, which might be a bit of a stretch, but um, that was, well, I mean, it's kind of about love, I guess. Um, but the premise is that there's like a party and there, Socrates is like asking everyone, like, how do you define love, basically? Um, but the interesting part about it is that there's like, it's like Plato is like, Socrates told me this, but then in the party, it's like someone's like, well, I was, uh, you know, um, like walking home and then this guy ran into me and then he was like, I just heard from this other person this theory about love. And so you end up with like this theory about love that's like seven people removed from your actual experience. Um, and that's kind of sort of similar in this where, you know, you have the sculptor's words and kind of Ozymandias's words, and then you have the traveler's words, and then you have the speaker's words, and then you have the reader reading it. So it's like, you know, you, you have to take like sort of um, three, four sort of steps to get most inward. We can return to that, but it, I think, it, yeah, it's a very striking choice that the poem makes. I, that gave me a thought because what sort of happens in the symposium is it almost democratizes the answers and it makes them coming from more places and it's more accumulated wisdom. Whereas part of the way I think this functions in the poem Ozymandias is it reaffirms the greatness of the figure that is now departed because you have all of these people still talking about a sculpture of a, of a big time dude, basically like a, a king of kings as he himself calls himself part of the poem is the fact that like this statue no longer stands but the desert remains and all of the works he refers to are not visible however everybody's talking about this guy and you get a sense of the far-reaching impact and by having these multiple layers they're all pointing back to a singular figure which is 
the title of the poem, Ozymandias, it's about this guy. And he might represent hubris or overreach and the, you know, low and level sand, lone and level sands are a, for lack of a better word, a leveling factor on his boastful claims. But because everybody's talking about him and his big statue, you get a sense of this enduring great figure. That is fascinating. I think we'll have much to discuss. But first, I think perhaps we should do what I probably too often do, which is just to like go through the poem in part because this is like, oh, 201 years old, which is kind of cool. But it means that the, the, the language is, it's old and it can be, it's even difficult for me to comprehend at times, um, just on a sort of a basic level. Um, so the first part is pretty obvious. Um, I met a traveler from an antique land. Okay. Um, and then he's, the traveler speaks two vast and trunkless legs of stone. Um, so we get these big stone blocks that are like the legs of the statue, I guess, that are standing in the desert. Then near those legs of stone, also in the desert on the sand, there's a visage. Um, so his face, the face of the, the king or the pharaoh, um, is sort of like sunken in the sand. And the face, you can sort of still read the expression on the face. So it's got a frown. It's got a wrinkled lip. It's got a sneer of cold command. And I think here we're getting some sense of like the things that Jack was talking about of this sort of overreaching uh, hubris guy. Like, you know, he's got this sneer. Anyway, um, he has a certain sort of ruler contempt for people. <laughs> At least that's one way to read the expression. The statue is of a pharaoh. The pharaohs were considered to be gods who walked amongst men. Even A heightened version even of what we think of as the divine right of kings, because uh, the pharaohs were truly thought to be gods. But if you want even like the modern sense of what this is like, watch the episode of The Crown where Elizabeth is anointed with holy oils and their discussion of how that moment goes because even in the 1950s they're talking about not necessarily literally but how important it is to preserve the idea that the monarch is anointed by god so in terms of any sort of like hubristic thoughts this is also the society this person is placed in and that's why there are these god renderings of pharaohs also if you watch scandal note how many times the president says I am the president of the United States of America. Like it's supposed to be, that's all you need to say. It's a get out of jail free card. Take that, Millie, I sleep with who I want. I'm the president of the United States of America. But guys, I'm the president of the United States of America. That's so gross. Anyway, after the cold command, there's gets, I think, a little tricky. So near them on the sand, there's the visage lies. Tell that its sculptor well those passions red which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. So here we get in this awkward English syntax, which now if anyone did it, it would be like you're just doing that for the rhyme because it's like tell that its sculptor read those passions well would be like probably a more direct saying it, but he wanted the red to come after. But I think that sort of inversion was was more 
was less weird at that time. But it's kind of like saying that the expression that remains on the face shows that the sculptor is like a good at sort of like conveying the passions or the, you know, the vibe of the Pharaoh, which has been accurate rendering, which are stamped, you know, on the lifeless, you know, stone. Um, And then it says the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. Um, And this, I think, and I'm curious what you think. I, at least I read it. I read somewhere that, that this is sort of what it refers to that the hand is the sculptor's hand, the hand that mocked them. Mock actually has sort of two meanings. One is the, 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 what we would understand is like it's making fun of kind of thing. But the other is just like, if you do a mock-up of something, you're just, it's just a literal um, neutral term for what a sculptor might do um, in sort of making a face. Yeah, it's Um, almost like an imitation. Yeah, exactly, an imitation. The heart that fed, who in God's knows what that means, let's skip that for now. I think the heart that fed is indicating that the sculptor felt a connection to the subject. And that's why not just the reality of the features, but we're told in the lines before that the sculptor read the passions of the person. And so it's the heart that fed the work that could understand this great ruler well enough to not just put his features, but something of his personality into the lifeless stone. I still have some questions, but I think we can get to those questions later. So then we get, we've sort of completed our description of the most of the sort of like the sculpture itself. And we get to our Volta and we turn pivot and it goes, and on the pedestal, these words appear. So now it's the words that are inscribed on the stone of the pedestal. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. He's the king. He's like, look at my stone sculptor, sculpture of myself. I'm like a boss. You should feel weak and despair at your lameness and smallness. That is a paraphrasing of uh, what historian Diodorus Siculus said oh. was was written on an actual statue. Uh, the inscription is translated as King of Kings, Ozymandias am I. If any want to know how great I am and uh, where I lie, let him outdo me in my work. So he's taken a creative liberty, this Shelley, but um, that's actually pretty close. So yeah, that's very interesting. It's like interesting that there's this poem is like historical to us, but it's also dealing with something even more historical. Don't tell um, Siculus, but I like PBS's version better. <laughs> I won't. That could just be a bad translation of the Latin, though. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> but well, then, <laughs> then after the, the words on the pedestal, we return to the traveler talking, describing, and he says, nothing to side remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. So basically, around this wreck of a sculpture, this ruin, there's nothing but the infinite desert. That's like what happens in the poem. And you were sort of talking about, this is sort of interesting, the fact of all the distancings 
um, you know, of, of like Ozymandias' words, the sculptor's words, the traveler's words, the speaker's words, speaks to the durability of Ozymandias, which I think is right. And I think that the sort of critical consensus with which I can gather um, the idea of durability or permanence or um, sort of like legacy um, is a kind of central concern of the poem. But I think that, and this, this was, I read a bit about this, um, I think on the Poetry Foundation website, which has a helpful poem guide to this poem. Um, they really, shout out to the Poetry Foundation, their descriptions of both some poems like this and poets are like so good. I recommend that you read that because especially for the more like canonical ones, they're basically like critical summaries where it's like a Wikipedia page, but like actually helpful and with analysis. <laughs> it's like so amazing. So the Poetry Foundation thing about this poem. As Jack noted about his nonviolent protests, apparently Shelley was a real anti-authoritarian. He like hated rulers and monarchs, which I could really relate to these days, especially. This writer reads it is the the last three lines are sort of an important, very important moment in the poem. Um, Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Um, and I'm curious what you think about this, but this writer writes, Shelley's final lines with their picture of the surrounding desert are his attempt to remove himself from both the king and the sculptor, to assert an uncanny, ironic perspective superior to the battle between ruler and ruled that contaminates both. Um, which is kind of wild. Um, anyway, but that what we're left with in the poem, even though it's about Ozymandias, is the desert and the infinite sands. And the sands are kind of like described very, it's very interesting, you know, it's like nothing beside remains, which is a sort of the shortest sentence in the poem um decay wreck and then boundless and bare the lone and level sands stretch far away um there's the the emptiness in the bare and the lone and the sort of solitude but there's also the the infiniteness of it the boundlessness the levelness um it's a very it's like a it's like a present absence, you know, in some kind of way, uh, which is maybe a bad phrase to use, but no, it's a uh, great phrase to use that has me thinking all kinds of things. Anyway, so I'm curious because it feels like I believe what you say, and that that is like a really good case for why we have this super distancing. But then on the same end, I find that reading plausible, at least in terms of why do we end with the desert? So I'm curious what you think about that. I agree that the success of this poem lies largely in those last three lines. 
And I think that the distancing of voices building up how great Ozymandias clearly was, and Ozymandias himself as one of those voices through the sculptor saying, I made a bunch of really big, important, cool stuff. You better freak out about it, you puny mortals. The ironic twist that those last three lines put on it, number one, is a very modern perspective to have on something. And I think is part of the reason why the poem endures and the ways that the poem is often deployed in popular culture are based around the irony of those last three lines. So like the ads for the second season, for the last season of Breaking Bad, the second half of its fifth season, were just atmospheric shots of deserts in and around Albuquerque and like Walter White's house and the RV and Brian Cranston reading this poem really dramatically in his awesome Brian Cranston voice, which you may or may not have heard a little bit of at the beginning of this podcast when I pretended to be Ozymandias. <laughs> but the way that the poem is being used there is after Walter White, minor spoilers for Breaking Bad, has said, I'm not in the meth business, I'm in the empire business. And there is even an episode entitled Ozymandias, and I'm gonna let y'all guess what happens in that episode based on the contents of this poem and the ironic turn it takes. Oh, um, no. I know. Connor hasn't I'm seen it yet. I'm stressed. No, it's a, that's a great... Um, anyway, continue, yeah. Yeah, a, another place where I know this was used is that Roger Federer lost in the third round of the Australian Open in 2015, and he was, like, old and stuff, and everybody was like, oh, my God, he's the most successful player ever, and he lost early. And there was an article written at that time with the title of Ozymandias, essentially saying, like, <laughs> age and time gets to everyone and everything, no matter how glorious it once was, uh, in reference mm -hmm. to Roger Federer who then proved all the haters wrong, reached two Grand Slam finals later that year, and then three years later is still one of the top-ranked tennis players in the world. If you didn't uh, know, Jack Russell Munley is the biggest Roger Federer stan of all time. It's yeah, well, okay. You know what? Stan Favrinka is a different tennis player from Switzerland who's also very successful in his own right, and he's a little bit tired of playing second fiddle to Roger Federer because he's also won three Grand Slams and, like, had his own awesome career and has maybe <laughs> the best one-handed backhand in history. So, like, step off with the putting Stan second. Whoa. Just kidding. I know it's a Twitter word. The point is, the way that this poem is often used leans into the irony of those last three lines which, as I said, is a very modern perspective to take on something like the Divine Right of Kings, which, as you were saying, PBS is not into, and he's not into monarchs and rules and like oppressive authoritarian power structures. He's a very forward-thinking guy in that regard. Um, but I do still think that the distancing serves to build up Ozymandias initially, which then makes that turn of the last three lines and the irony it contains more powerful. Because even though this is the perspective the poem takes, you can't escape the fact that everybody is still talking about this guy thousands of years after he lived. And that indicates some kind of greatness in the works that he wrought, even if all that's left of them is this busted sculpture. That's really interesting. The counter to that argument, which I think is right. Um, you is, think the counter is right, or you think I'm right? Because I'm ready to fight right now. <laughs> I think you are right, but I also think Whew. this is interesting. So the next part of the Poetry Foundation article, and I swear that as soon as I read this, I'll have my own ideas, but I don't know if I will, um, is that um, 
one thing that that article notices is that the even Ozymandias says, look on my works, not like look on me. And that there's a, there's a, there is something enduring, but is it Ozymandias or is it the kind of art um, or the sort of crafted things that commemorate him or about him? Um, and the kind of like end of that article on the Poetry Foundation, um, I mean, it gets a little, anyway, here we go. Um, the critic Leslie Brisman remarks on, quote, the way the timelessness of metaphor escapes the limits of experience in Shelley. Time, end quote. Timelessness can be achieved only by the poet's words, not by the ruler's will to dominate. The fallen titan Ozymandias becomes an occasion for Shelley's exercise of this most tenuous yet persisting form, poetry. Shelley's sonnet, A Brief Epitome of Poetic Thinking, has outlasted empires. It has witnessed the deaths of boastful tyrants and the decline of the British dominion he so heartily scorned. Um, and just as a little addendum to this, that reading that made me think of this essay that um, came out last spring, um, which was by the writer Alexander Chi. Um, it's a great little essay, um, very moving, but it's called On Becoming an American Writer. Um, and one, one moment, sort of, he's kind of like talking about why he wants his students to sort of like actually think that writing is important, um, even though, you know, so often we sort of consider it a trivial pastime or, or a luxury that, you know, um, you know, you can do if you get the chance or whatever. Um, but he's sort Alexander Chi says, um, you know, art is strength. Um, and he said, I can't, I told them as in my students that I can't recall the emperors of China as well as I can Mencius who counseled them and whose stories of them shared in his poetry of these rulers and their problems describe them for me almost entirely. And the paradox of how a novel, should it survive, protects what a missile can't. I think is interesting. I think um, that's super cool. And that is an interesting aspect of this poem because it is the sculpture of Ozymandias that it's about rather than anything particular to this dude. I think that's complicated a little bit because Ozymandias probably commissioned this sculpture. It kind of is one of his works. Not that I don't think that the reading about how his works are mostly vanished and that's like important. Um, but he like probably said, make this big sculpture of me. Yeah, yeah. But also the fact that Ozymandias or Ramses II is a widely written about historical figure. And I don't, so, know, how, I don't know how true that was at the time, but like, we remember him because he was the top pharaoh and I, is, as a result, like a very good symbol of power, which is kind of how the, the poem works. I totally buy into the argument that the, the uh, person on the Poetry Foundation website is making, and I agree with it. But I think there's also 
I think my reading and that kind of sit alongside each other rather than being in any kind of conflict, you know? I, yeah. think, I think they're sort of two sides of the same thing. I may have created uh, a brouhaha where there was not one. That's okay. Um, That's good. We can make up a clickbait title for this now. <laughs> well, I think I have a synthesis to my false thesis antithesis thing. All right. Um, hit me with it, Hegel. What you got? <laughs> well, it's just that getting back to what you were talking about with the, um, the distancing is one thing that that does show is, as you were saying, sort of the endure, the enduringness of um, Ozymandias as a figure. But the other thing that that shows is it, it sort of makes explicit the way through which we sort of remember him and the way through which he endures, which is through language and through writing. Um, so we sort of see in sort of like step by step, you know, um, this poem isn't sort of a direct thing from Ozymandias. It's traveled, you know, from Ozymandias to the sculptor, to the traveler, to Shelley, to us. Um, and it's sort of traveled in all those ways, um, you know, um, through language. And, and so he endures, and in the same way as that sort of the Alexander Chi was sort of talking about, um, the emperors of China endure, um, but they endure through the writing of Mencius. That's I, re I really like that. And I think that's really right. Because um, even within the poem, you see the different ways that Ozymandias wants to be remembered in writing, which is the inscription on the sculpture, versus the way that he is being remembered both in the speaking of the, of the traveler to the poet. I, I take it as to the poet, but to, to the person we meet at the beginning, the I in the poem. And then you also have the way that PBS put that all together in the poem as putting those three voices in conversation with each other. So you have Ozymandias' intention, you have the traveler's recollection, and then you have this whole condensation of those three views in one tight sonnet. And to sort of bring it into the sonnet again as a form, one way to think about sonnets um, and the turn is like, you often have a kind of argument um, in the sort of first half of poem, and then you have a kind of, the turn is a sort of counter. And in the, Oftentimes in the couplet, there's a sort of resolution, perhaps. As an example, in like Shakespeare's Sonnet 73, which is the one that I know and always quote, that's a classic Carpe Diem poem where it's like, I'm dying and you should love me. But the beginning part of the poem is I'm dying. It's like that time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none do hang or few do hang. It's like an autumn death, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and so that's kind of like the initial moment. And then the third quatrain, which happens sort of after the Volta, is a kind of intensification of, of that um, where he's like death's second self. He's sort of burning on his own embers basically um or the ashes of his youth doth lie or something like that um so there's a kind of twist there and then the couplet is like this thou perceivest 
Um, and so that will make you love me, basically. Um, in a similar but distinctly different way, this poem follows a sort of version of that where the first eight lines talk about the sculpture um, and describe sort of the sculptor um, and pay attention to the ways in which the sculptor sort of themselves is like the one doing the work of making this enduring thing. Then we have the turn that's the pedestal and Ozymandias speaks in kind of like a counter you could almost have as the sculptor, um, you know, look on my works, ye mighty and despair. And then the last three lines, which isn't quite the Shakespearean closing couplet, but is a kind of like, um, you know, final turn is, you know, the description of the desert um, and is in some ways like probably I think even though in theory it's the traveler, it's I feel like it's when Shelley sort of emerges the most as like his voice speaking. Um, and yeah, and so he kind of like fits, you know, we've been talking about all these different ways of thinking about these certain themes. Um, and it's amazing, I think, that we can sort of talk about these big topics and then look at the poem again and be like, it's 14 lines long. It's, you know, 10 syllables long, mostly. Um, it's super compact. Um, but I think the way that it, it gets its depth is in the way is this sort of in the turns themselves, they sort of allow that sort of space for, um, you know, bigger complication, comp for bigger complicated themes to emerge. I totally agree. And we said something similar about another short poem, Emily Dickinson's To Make a Prairie, where there are quite a few turns in like 35 words. Yeah. <laughs> there's like three different, We, as we said at the time, there's three different answers to the implicit question of what, what does make a prairie. She gives you three different answers in like zero space. And so that makes the poem feel much bigger than it really is. And you're totally right. The same thing goes on here. It's a longer poem, but it's still a very short poem for the amount of depth that is drawn out. Um, and some of that depth, I think, also just comes from the span of time that the poem engages with, because it is thousands of years of history and human creativity and artistry that it, and you know empire building and falling that is condensed into this really tight space. Yeah. And, and even one of the people who's talking is a traveler. So he's telling you about his trip that he took. So there's even in the in the present day time, there's this person who is going around the world, gathering experiences and relaying them. There's a, still a sense of an ever expanding universe that the poem is interested in talking about. Exactly. I think that's really right. Emily Dickinson outdid him, I think, is the moral of the story. As, um, as she does us all. <laughs> One other connection to make, um, which I wish I was more of a scholar and could do this better, but I do feel like this poem, and maybe someone has written about this, is participating in a lineage of poems that are basically about objects. Perhaps like a poem about a Grecian urn. Perhaps a Grecian urn. So 
I think this goes all the way back to Horace. In his odes, his ode three, he wrote, which is a sort of now famous moment, I have built a, mo- a monument. I have built a monument more lasting than bronze, higher than the pyramid's regal structures that no consuming rain nor wild north wind can destroy. Um, and his monument he's referring to is his poetry. Um, so there's kind of like the sort of inception of this idea of the poem as the immortal thing um, that sort of stands in tension to like the ephemeral material uh, stuff of monuments. Um, then we get our Grecian urn. Um, then, but there's sort of like, I think there's like a million sort of versions of this. Um, another kind of one that I wanted to read because it's a short one, but it's also interesting is um, this Wallace Stevens poem called Anecdote of the Jar, um, which is in his first book, Harmonium. And um, it goes like this. I placed a jar in Tennessee and round it was upon a hill. It made the slovenly wilderness surround that hill. The wilderness rose up to it and sprawled around no longer wild. The jar was round upon the ground and tall and of a port in air. It took dominion everywhere. The jar was gray and bare. It did not give a bird or bush like nothing else in Tennessee. Mm. Um, Which is very interesting. And I think there's a lot going on there, but um, we have a kind of jar, which is like our Grecian urn, which is like our monument, which is like our sculpture of Ozymandias. Could also be kind of similar to the red wheelbarrow upon which so much depends. That's true. That is very true. Yes. And here, similarly, um, the the jar kind of like makes the world bend to it. Um, so it took dominion everywhere. You know, the wilderness rose up to it. It made the slovenly wilderness surround the hill. Um, so it ha- it exerts this kind of force on nature, um, which has a sort of similar but like or parallel but but different relationship to nature that the ozymandias sculpture does to the desert um but an interesting one and one other interesting contrast is that the jar is distinctly sort of not um grand you know the jar was gray and bare um and it's in tennessee which i mean I don't think Stevens was like knocking Tennessee per se, but it's, um, you know, it's not in the, you know, it's not on the Nile of Egypt or some like sort of stereotypically, um, almost like fetishistically sort of grand locale. You know, it's in some random hill in Tennessee. and so, yeah, to me, that's it. That's like, um, you know, as you were saying, like Shelley has his sort of modern desert take, um, 
but at the same time is still confronting um, this sort of, you know, sheer terror, maybe sublime terror of the the huge, you know, the the, the ruin of Ozymandias or whatever, um, which has that kind of like romantic um, sensibility capital R that he was sort of a part of, even as he was skeptical of it, perhaps. Um, while Stevens is in a kind of more distinctly modernist tradition, we would say, where, um, you know, the sublime sort of isn't even something to be like reckoned with per se. Um, and there's sort of like the ordinary stuffness of things, um, yet there's still this kind of power. Anyway, I mean, it gets more complicated, but you could sort of, um, one could, I think, look at poems about jars throughout history and get an interesting sort of sense of the way that literature has sort of developed um, in, its, in its various paradigms. That's super cool. I love all of that. Do you know what people used to chant at old-timey poetry slams when Horace was reading and a bunch of other poets were also reading? I'm very stressed. What? What would they Don't chant? bore us. Get to the Horace. Oh. <laughs> They'd also shout Freebird. Because <laughs> that transcends time. Do you have any other thoughts? I have one other thing that I wanted to tease out kind of quickly, and I don't know that it's something that it has a ton of depth to it, but it's something that I noticed and thought was kind of interesting, which is that there are three words that are not titles that are in the middle of sentences that are capitalized, which are works, mighty, and wreck. So if you want a really quick key to those last three lines and kind of to what the poem is getting at and saying is important, it's that someone who does mighty works, those mighty works will eventually get wrecked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and that there is meaning in that. And that I think is sort of what the poem gets at. And those those three words all come in the last four lines. Two of them are part of the rephrased inscription on the sculpture, which are works and mighty. And then of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. I just thought yeah. that that was kind of neat that uh, PBS is pointing us so strongly in that direction. Right. And, and it's a very like it, that gives us sort of a sense that it really is Shelley's voice coming in at the end because um, works and mighty are capitalized presumably on the inscription itself. The capitalization is like a visual note, but the traveler who's telling Shelley, this presumably isn't going to be like, um, and that colossal wreck, which I tell you orally with the capital W, um, you know, that's not the traveler talking. That is, um, that is a distinctly Shelley choice. Um, so I think that's right. That, that, that word is, is the, the, the big contrast to the mighty work. Cool. Excellent. Shall we read it again? Yes. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert 
Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Hey everybody, this is Jack again. Thank you so much for listening. This is the part of the show where we tell you all the different ways you can get in touch with us because we love to hear from you. If you have ideas for future episodes, comments on this or any of our past episodes, different readings of poems than the ones that we offered, we want to hear it. Uh, the fastest and easiest way to get in touch with us is on Twitter. The show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn and Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. You can also get in touch with us via email if you have lengthier thoughts. Our email address is closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. And of course, the very best way to stay up to date on the latest close talking happenings is to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Uh, We're also available, in addition to iTunes, on Stitcher and SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.